morning again. Take your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Last week we looked at verse 18. This morning we look at verses 19 to 21 specifically. Ephesians chapter 5. As we all know, it is one thing to say something. It is another thing entirely to actually do that, right? It's one thing to have a gym membership. It's another thing to, to actually use it, right? It's one thing to say you eat healthy. It's another thing to actually eat healthy. Last Sunday, if you remember, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 saw the command that we are to be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 25 says that we are to walk in the Spirit. We talked about this last Sunday, that to be filled with the Spirit means that we come under the control of the Holy Spirit. To submit body, soul, and spirit, mind, will, and emotions, word, deed, and desire to the Spirit's influence and the guidance that the Spirit brings in our lives. That's what the filling of the Spirit is. Now, like I said, it's one thing to hear the command to be filled with the Spirit. It's another thing entirely to actually be walking in the Spirit. You know, in our Christian lives, if, if you would admit this, I, I know I would, we're pretty good at hearing what we are to be and to do, right? We're pretty good at hearing the instruction and saying, yes, I even agree with that. Where we struggle is a lot of times in the doing of what we hear. Would you agree? The doing of what we hear. And that's why James warns us. You remember in James chapter 1, he says, don't be deceived, Be not only just hearers of the word, but also be doers of the word. The power is in the doing, not just the hearing of the word. So here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we see the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what we talked about last week. We are commanded to be filled. Well, in 5, verse 19 and 21 and following... We see what what follows the filling of the Spirit. So verse 18, the filling of the Holy Spirit, verses 19 through 21, and then you could continue really through the rest of the the book, is what follows the filling of the Spirit. This is what it looks like to actively be walking in the Spirit. You know, somebody can tell who you are if they look at you and see you a ways off in the distance by the way that you walk. When someone sees you, your walk, your gait, your life should betray the fact that you are filled by the Holy Spirit, that you are under the Spirit's control. Let's read verses 18 down through verse 21. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. 
verses 19 to 21 is what follows the filling. If you are under the control of the Holy Spirit, then these things will follow. We see that believers will be together. Scripture will be made public. We will edify one another. There will be worship and praise. There will be gratefulness. There will be faithfulness. Our hearts will be in tune with the Lord. The Trinity will be acknowledged in our lives. Our private lives will be for God. Our public lives will be for God. There will be a horizontal relationship with others and a vertical relationship with God. There will be respect for others and it will all come under the fear of God. Couple all of that that's in verses 19 to 21 with what we find in Galatians 5 verses 22 to 23 where it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you get all that? That's all what follows the filling of the Spirit. And I know what I just did there, and it's intentional. We kind of just dumped all the groceries on the kitchen counter, right? When you come home from going shopping, you just dump them all out right there. Well, now let's go back and let's organize them into the cupboards, if you will. Look at verse 19. We see here that what follows the filling of the Spirit is our speaking and our singing, Verse 19, be, or verse 18, the end of it, be filled with the Spirit, and then segues right into speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So the Spirit's filling of us overflows, as it were, into speaking and singing worship to the Lord with one another. I want you to notice three things here. Notice the two descriptions. He says we speak and we sing. Notice the two directions to one another and Lord. Notice the two dimensions publicly to others and privately in hearts to the Lord. So we have this speaking to one another, singing to the Lord, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So we kind of have a lot going on here in this one verse. I don't think, though, we're supposed to view these as all disconnected parts of our lives. You know, like, well, now I speak to others, now I sing to the Lord, now, now I do it publicly, and now I do it privately. I don't think we're supposed to, supposed to parse it out that much. I think what he's getting at here is we see this as different perspectives of the, the whole thing. The, the same connected thing, our worship to the Lord, is viewed through many different lenses and perspectives. That it's to the Lord, it's, it's, it's in front of one another, it's public, it's private. That when we are speaking to others, are we ever just speaking to them? No, we're doing it in the presence of the Lord. So in essence, as we speak to others, we are still speaking to the Lord. When we sing worship to the Lord, we don't do that just only in the privacy of our own, of our own moments. We do that with one another. And I think here we see this intersection of the vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationships with others. You know, those two are never, ever disconnected. Never 
ever are they disconnected. Those two are always intersecting. Your relationship with God will, will, have, will have impact on your relationship with others. And your relationship with others will in many ways prove your relationship with God. Those things are always intersecting. Worship is first upward, but also it's inward and it's outward. So that when we come together to worship the Lord, when we speak and when we sing, we do it for God's glory and for the edification of others. We do it for God's glory and for the edification of others. You realize that singing in scripture, and you know this in your lives too, is one of the main ways that we worship and glorify God. It is. You're going to see it throughout Scripture. I'm going to go through this in just a second. And why is that? Because not only is music a gift from God that he has given to us, by which we, we glorify him, but music is incredibly edifying, incredibly instructive for those that hear it. To see and hear those young ladies play that on the piano, that's encouraging. That's edifying. That's instructing to us. I wish you could have been here Friday when we had the, uh, the Thanksgiving chapel for the students at Wayside Christian. And the last song we sang was How Great Thou Art. And to hear the kindergartners and the, the first graders, Michelle and, and Jane and those that were there, Melissa, you, you heard them sing and it was just incredible. And they're singing this great old hymn, Thou Art. Do they understand everything about what that means? No, they don't. I hope they all do at some point. But to hear them worship and, and praise the Lord was an extremely edifying for those that heard it. Last year, I think it was at the spring concert when the kids, this is why you got to come to these concerts, all right, for the school, little shameless plug here for the school concerts. But the last year at the concert, the, 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 the teenagers, the middle school and high school were singing on the stage and all the elementaries were upstairs. Was this last year? upstairs in that, uh, that second deck. And nobody, I didn't know that they were doing this. I'm sitting in the front, I couldn't see them. And all of a sudden they stand up and they start singing the chorus of that song we just sang, Hope of All Creation. And it's filling the gym. It was incredible. We got to do that again sometime. Just remember that, all right? But it's incredible to hear them sing, Hope of All Creation, right? right? Calling out to God in worship. You realize God's people are singing people. God's people are singing people. They always have been, and they always will be. They always have been, and they always will be. Job 38 tells us that at the beginning of time, when God created the world, the angels sang together and shouted for joy. The angels saw what God was doing, and they couldn't help but breaking out into song. Can you imagine what that sounded like? Right? We talk about somebody having an angelic voice, well, imagine if it's actually an angel that's singing. In Exodus 15, right after God's people cross the Red Sea, God does that great miracle and he brings them out. Exodus 15, it says that God's people gathered together and under Moses' instruction, they sang a song of praise to the Lord. Second Chronicles 20, very unique story. God used the people singing under King Jehoshaphat to actually defeat their enemies. Their singing was so good, it killed people. Maybe it was so bad it killed people. I don't know. It could be either way there. I'm not sure. But the point is, God told them, go out and sing. Go out and sing. Psalm 96 verses 1 to 2 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. That's, one, that's two verses in Psalms that I just read. 
Psalms are filled with that type of language. And what are the Psalms? They're songs. They're prayers put to music, prayers of praise, sometimes of lament. You, you see some of that in there, you know, why God, what, why is this going on? I don't understand. But you usually, at the end of those lament psalms, you usually see the author come back around to, God, I trust you. God, I see what you're doing. I, I see your hand at work. In Matthew 26, verse 30, it tells us that Jesus and the disciples, right before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus was about to die, it says they sang a hymn together. It was probably a psalm that they sang together. Acts 16, you know the story, Paul and Silas are imprisoned, right, for preaching the gospel. And they're in there and they could have been moping around. Instead, what does it say they did? They sang praises to God. God sends that earthquake, right? And, and while they're, they're rejoicing and glorifying God, several times in Paul's writings, we've seen it here already in Ephesians 5 verse 14 could be an example of this where Paul actually quotes several hymns, maybe drawing from different parts of scripture or just common hymns that they had at that time. Hebrews 2 verse 12 tells us that Jesus himself will sing praise. I had never noticed that verse before like that until I was putting this together. But Hebrews 2.12, it says that Jesus himself will sing praise. You realize music is a gift? Music is a great gift from God. Learn it. Use it. Sing. You know, I've never heard anyone say, I wish I didn't know music. But I've heard a ton of people say, I wish I knew music. Maybe there's an opportunity to still learn. You say, well, I could never do that. You can still sing. You don't have to know all the ins and outs of the music. Just when you see the music up there, if the, I, tell, I tell my boys this while they're learning piano. If it goes down, you go down. If it goes up, you go up, right? And your voice or on the piano or whatever. Now, that might be a little too simplified. But the idea is there, sing. Make melody in your heart to the Lord. Because when we gather together to sing, man, it fills up a room, and God is glorified, and you hear people singing, and they are edified. See, music in a service is not just to fill a time slot. We could take out the music, but that means I would get more time. But it's not just for that. It's not just, and it's not just also, we hear this a lot of times, that, well, it prepares our hearts for the service. That's true. But music in itself is edifying and worship, and it is teaching moments. As we hear this, these lyrics and we hear the truth of these songs that pours into our hearts, and as we sing that, we're teaching our kids. We're teaching those sitting around. We're teaching the, the guests and the visitors and maybe even unbelievers in our midst. We're teaching them the truths of Scripture. Music is an amazing thing. You know, in the Middle Ages, the time period we would call about 500 to 1500, the church's public worship to God in song fell out of practice. They didn't really sing much in church at that time. Dark ages, right? Spiritually dark time, where there wasn't a whole lot of truth. The Catholic church kind of had a stranglehold on everything. When the truth wasn't prevalent, you know what got pushed to the side? Music, good music. God raised up men like Martin Luther, and through the Reformation, singing was reintroduced to the church. It's an incredible, incredible time. Martin Luther said this. He said, I have no use for cranks who despise music because it is a gift of God. Next day, 
or theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Music is second only to theology in the service of God. I think he's on to something there. After the Reformation, in the, in the many years after the Reformation, the writing of hymns and, and spiritual songs grew. We have a hymn book full of uh, many of the great hymns of, of the past, people like Fanny Crosby and Charles Wesley, who each one of them wrote over 6,000 hymns. Obviously, they're not all in the book. That'd be a big one. But they, they're writing these songs of praise to God. We've been blessed with those in the past. We've been blessed in the present as well. There is a resurgence of modern hymns being written by groups and people like City of Light, Keith and Kristen Getty, Andrew Peterson, Chris Anderson. We're, we're blessed by these. Men and women who are using the talents and abilities that God has given to them and are pouring that out through song. And we can come together and sing what has been written. Revelation tells us this. Revelation 5, verse 8 and 10 says that the songs of praise to God will continue throughout all of eternity. Listen, it says in verses 8 and 10 of chapter 5, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. They sang a new song to God. Singing is in our Christian blood. It's in our blood. It's part of who we are as believers. Don't ever miss that. There's a great documentary that just came out called The Essential Church. And it talks about the story of a church in California and the two churches in Canada that during the COVID pandemic were, faced a lot of struggle from the government. And one of the things that the government told these churches to do is if you meet, you cannot sing. You cannot sing. And they said, sorry, we've been commanded to sing. We've been commanded to sing, to praise and to worship God and to edify others. You realize if we don't sing, we fail to walk in the Spirit? Because to be filled with the Spirit means speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now notice there in verse 19, he says, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We worship the Lord in the various beauty of his creativity. Unity in the purpose, which is worship to God, variety in the form. He says psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. The emphasis there is not on each and every little individual and everybody's personal preference on that. The emphasis is sing, sing, sing in private. Some of you are, some of you are those people, right? I sing in the shower because nobody else is there, right? I sing in my car and you're one of those Jesus jam people, right? That you come up to the stoplight and you look over and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> sing to the Lord. Sing with others. Here's what we have to remember. The importance of music is so much. The believer is a singer. The believer is a singer. The music is the truth of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the conductor. God is the audience and the church is edified. Keep those things in mind. The believer is a singer. All people that on earth do dwell, 
Sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with fear, his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. Part of walking in the Spirit definitely is speaking and singing praise to God for the edification of others. But he continues in verse 20 as well with another topic here. Give thanks. Thanksgiving. According to 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, it is the will of the Lord that we give thanks. And here in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20, giving thanks is an overflow of the Spirit filling and controlling our lives. See, you know as well as I do that the natural bent of our nature is not towards giving thanks, is it? It's not. The natural bent of our human nature is actually toward grumbling and complaining. And that's why we are constantly reminded in Scripture, give thanks. Be thankful. You realize to be unthankful is to be like the evil people in the perilous times of the last days, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul lists this, this list of just heinous things. And you know what's in there? Unthankful. Unthankful. And I think this is such an appropriate verse. This is God working out the timing of all that. We come to this verse in Ephesians chapter 5, 20, in this week of thanks, right? This month of thanks. The week of thanksgiving. What an appropriate verse for this, for this week. I would say that Thanksgiving is probably my favorite holiday. Probably my favorite holiday. But I wonder how much of Thanksgiving has become a title and not a habitual act. How much of Thanksgiving and the holiday has just become something, a thing, a day, a title, and not actually something that we do? You know, anymore, we have to work hard at redeeming Thanksgiving. You know that to be true. I know that to be true. We have to work hard to redeem Thanksgiving because football and shopping and even food sometimes encroaches on what it really means to give thanks. And we have to, we have to take a step back and we say, how do I this year redeem Thanksgiving and not get all caught up in, in the rush of things? And all the other things that are going on. How do I get my family, my, my spouse, whoever it is in your group, in your, in your family gathering, how do we take a step back and say, what does it truly mean to give thanks instead of what is just getting together for Thanksgiving? I, I put something in your bulletin. It's that orange sheet. This is something that uh, I came across a few years ago. But it's helpful, and I encourage you, and that's why I put it in the bulletin for today, I encourage you to try out these questions at your gathering this year so that you, you bring an element back to Thanksgiving where you get people talking about God's goodness, talking about the blessing that other people have been in your lives. Talk about how God is leading you, where Thanksgiving is not just a title, but it's something that we actually do. Try those out and see if... They're not a blessing to you and your family. We're going to be doing some of that tonight as we gather together as a church and, and eat together, but also draw our attention to Thanksgiving. We're, we're going to talk here too uh, a little bit more. This verse here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, especially the phrase where it says, always for all things, we are to give thanks. You know, that always word implies 
faithfulness to thanksgiving. We are to give thanks always. There's a faithfulness to our thanksgiving. Thanksgiving on the fourth Thursday of November doesn't apply, imply a whole lot of faithfulness to it, does it? If we relegate it to that time. Honestly, why isn't every fourth Thursday of every month Thanksgiving? Our bellies not, might not like that too well, but our spirits would. In fact, why not extend that even more? According to verse 20, that always word, maybe every day should be Thanksgiving. In Revelation 7, verses 11 and 12, it says this, All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Giving thanks to God will be an eternal discipline. It's something you will do for all eternity. Why not develop that discipline now? It's also evidence, as we see here in this verse, it's evidence of the Spirit's control in our lives. Speaking, singing, thanksgiving, look at verse 21, submitting. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting here is a military term. It means to arrange yourself under, to come underneath, to arrange under. If you've served in the military, you're probably very familiar with submission. The military would be one place where you quickly learn that you don't run the show. You submit to the people who do run the show, or else, right? You quick. What we see here in verse 21 is submission to one another in the fear of the Lord. Here again, we see that horizontal, vertical connection, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. As you submit to God, you will submit to others as well. As you submit to others, who ultimately are you submitting to? God. You know, sometimes, if we're honest, we, we struggle with submission to the Lord, don't we? Yet the Lord is perfect and pure and kind. Yet we still struggle to submit to him. If we struggle submitting to him, is it any wonder then what, that we struggle submitting to those who are not? Who are not pure, who are not kind. Yet our fear here, our fear of the Lord in verse 21, demands that we submit to others also, you realize submission is all over scripture, all over the place. It's all over this passage too, right? We are to submit to government, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2 tells us that. Hebrews 13 says we are to submit to spiritual authority. Here in chapter 5 and 6, we're going to see wives are to submit to husbands. Children, verse, uh, chapter 6, are to submit to parents. Uh, later in chapter 6, employees are to submit to employers, Notice how this is worded here, submitting to one another. Everyone submits to everyone in different ways depending on their role, depending on their situation in life. No one is exempt from submitting and no one is exempt from being submitted to. An example, hopefully, that will, will cause this to, uh, to play out better in your minds and that is this. Let's take a mayor, a pastor, 
and the people that live in that area. Sounds like we're starting a joke, I know. But if the mayor attends a church, the mayor of the town attends church, he is supposed to submit to the pastor's leadership. But the pastor there that he submits to also lives in that town, meaning the, ta- the pastor submits to the mayor and his leadership. Yet the mayor and the pastor both are called to be servants of their people, and therefore they submit to the needs and the best interests of the people which they serve. Yet at the same time, those people must submit to the leadership of the mayor and the pastor in their respective areas. You see how that all works out? And so that's why he says here, it's not just one group that submits to one other group. No, it's submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. There's these overlapping areas. It's like like gears coming together, right? Where there's overlapping areas of submission. Now notice this last phrase is important too. All of this submission to each other is to come under the broad scope of our submission to Christ in the fear of the Lord. We submit to one another in the fear of God, which means you are to submit to violates the commands of Christ. Your submission must be to Christ first. If anyone that you are to come underneath, they violate the command of Christ, your submission then must be to Christ first. That's why the apostle said in Acts 5.29, when something or somebody crosses the will of God, they said we ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men because our submission to one another always comes under our fear of the Lord. Here, can we go to this mic here? Opportunity, or our greatest example of submission, excuse me, is Christ himself. Christ is God in the flesh. Christ is, has all power and deity of the Godhead. And yet, who was Christ. God himself. Yet he submits. He willingly submits himself to the will of the Father and submits himself to the burden of sin on the cross. Don't miss that. He submits himself to the needs of mankind for salvation. Philippians 2.8 says he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of of the cross. John 6, 38, Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We better be very thankful for the submission of Christ. Not just because he sets the example of our submission, but because Christ's submission means our salvation. Christ's submission to his father means our salvation. And I ask you this, have you submitted to Christ? Have you submitted to Christ as the only way of salvation? See, human nature says, well, I can do it on my own. I can figure it out on my own. I have another path. Scripture says you must submit to Christ. Scripture says there is no other name given among heaven, given under heaven whereby you must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. So Christ submitting to the Father means we must submit to Christ in order to come to the Father for our salvation. Repent of your sins, submit to Christ, and be saved. You see here in this passage that speaking and singing and thanksgiving and submitting are all fruits of the Spirit. 
fruits of being filled with the Spirit. I'll give you in conclusion here some observations regarding all these as a whole. The first one is, if you notice, they are all relational. Did you notice the phrase one another showing up a couple times? In verse 19 and then verse 21 as well. Each of these results of being filled with the Spirit is realized in a community context. See, the Christian life is not to be individualized. It's just me on my own little island and I live for God. No, no, no. The Christian life is to be communal. The filling of the Spirit does not isolate you or insulate you from others. It actually connects you to others. That relationship with the Spirit puts us into the community of the church. It impacts all our relationships. That's why he then talks about husbands and wives. He talks about children and parents and fathers and children. And he talks about employers and employees. And the end of chapter 6, he talks about our relationship to the world. That submission to Christ, that submission to the Spirit impacts everything. We find our highest good in relationships when they are submitted and filled by the Spirit. Second observation here is that they are not sensational. Being filled with the Spirit, the results of being filled with the Spirit are not necessarily sensational. When people talk of the filling of the Spirit, and you've heard this before, they often also refer to some grand display of spiritual power. Oh, I speak in tongues now, or I cast, it out, I cast out some demons the other day, or, or I went and I healed somebody. I'm still looking for all that here in Ephesians 5. I haven't found it yet right? And I don't say that to mock that because it is true that in Acts 2 and in other places in Acts, the initial coming of the Holy Spirit was often accompanied by signs and wonders to validate the coming of the Holy Spirit and to validate God's messengers, the apostles. But the Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit and the apostles have been validated. And once that foundation was laid, the foundation of the apostles, as the Bible talks about, here in Ephesians even, it seems that those miraculous signs and wonders have faded somewhat. Why? Because a foundation doesn't have to be laid twice. God laid the foundation for his church. You don't build a little bit and then lay another foundation. That's foolish. So today, the filling of the Spirit is not normally proved through sensational miracles and wondrous works. Now, don't misquote me here. Can God work in sensational ways? Yes, he can. Please be clear on that. Absolutely he can. I do not want to be guilty of limiting God in any way. But is our salvation and our walking in the Spirit proved by us doing sensational things? Casting out demons or healing people or speaking in tongues. If it was, if it was, most of us would have no proof of the Spirit or we would probably be guilty of forcing the sensational in order to concoct the proof. And I think that's what we see a lot of in our world today. We force the sensational, we, 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 we contrive it in order then to prove something that we think we have to have in order to say that we have the Spirit. So the proof of the Spirit's filling is not in the sensational, but actually in the normal habits, patterns, and relationships of life being redeemed for God's use and glory. When a somewhat ordinary believer like you and I, when we live a life submitted to God's will, that's the proof of the filling of the Spirit. And maybe that's proof even more so than a sudden burst of forced sensationalism. A life submitted to God. That's proof of the Spirit. 
the last observation I want to show you here is, is that it's scriptural. The overflow of the Spirit produces the same results as the Word dwelling in us richly. Cast your eyes on Ephesians 5, verses 19 to 21. Kind of look at the whole thing while I read Colossians 3, 16 to 17. Verse 18 of Ephesians 5 says, Be filled with the Spirit, and here's the results. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and here's the results. Notice the results. Look at Ephesians while I read Colossians, or vice versa. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Did you see the similarities? It's almost the same thing. Yet, the impact of Ephesians 5 is the spirit and what it produces. Colossians 3 is the word and what it produces. What does that show us? The spirit and the word are always working together. They're always working in harmony. We should never pit the word against the spirit as if you must be spirit-filled or word-filled. We should always be both. We should always be both. You've heard people say that. Well, you know, you guys have your order of service and stuff like that, and you plan ahead and things like that. I go to a spirit-filled church. So do I, right? The spirit is filling us and working in us and under the control of the Holy Spirit. The word and the spirit always work in harmony to accomplish the same goals. The word never leads you where the spirit doesn't guide you. The spirit never tells you to do what the word says not to do. Well, I just feel led to step away from the church for a while. That's not the Holy Spirit telling you to do that. That's you telling you to do that. Why? I know that. Because the word says, don't forsake the assembling together of ourselves. So the Spirit wouldn't tell me to do something the Word tells me not to do. We have to be careful that we're not filling ourselves with ourselves and on the Spirit. To which one will you yield? The self or the Spirit? The self or the Spirit? In 1915, Robert Frost wrote a poem entitled The Road Not Taken. And in this poem, he comes to, he describes himself coming to a Y in the road where he says this, two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could. As he stands there, he contemplates these two roads. He sees that one road has been traveled a lot. It's trampled down, but the other road much less traveled. And at the end of the poem, he says he made his decision. He says, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Throughout our lives, two roads will always diverge. It is the road of self and the road of spirit. The road of self is well-worn. It's well-traveled. Most people travel on that one. The road of submission to the spirit much less traveled on. But finding and traveling on that road, walking in the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit, that will make all the difference. Let's pray.